0: Welcome to a special episode of The Partial Historians. Today we are going to be speaking to someone local. Professor Ray Lawrence from Macquarie University, although unfortunately we were not able to meet up in person as we had planned because of a lockdown that was taking place in Sydney at the time of recording. We hope that you enjoy listening to Ray share his amazing knowledge of what life was like in Pompeii before the eruption. And if you do enjoy this episode, please consider becoming a Patreon so that you can get early access to all of the bonus episodes that we are working hard to produce for our wonderful community of listeners. However, if you are not currently in the position to become a Patreon, then please support the show by spreading the word any way that you can. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. And we are joined by someone who is been very special to our podcast today, Professor Ray Lawrence. Ray Lawrence is a professor of ancient history at Macquarie University in Australia, but before he worked in Australia, he was professor of Roman history and archaeology at the University of Kent in the UK. His work is based in archaeology, history and classics, and it's characterized by a cross disciplinary aspect that causes it to be accessible to architects, landscape historians, geographers and urbanists. He has published books and articles on urbanism at Pompeii and across the western half of the Roman Empire. In addition to this, Ray Lawrence was one of the pioneers who worked with TED-Ed to produce animated videos and lessons, including A Glimpse of Teenage Life in Ancient Rome, which has had over 10 million views, and Four Sisters in Ancient Rome, which has had over 8 million views to date. And the real gold star on his resume is that he has been a big supporter of our show, of course. But today we are going to talk to him about streets and public space in Pompeii and how children fit into this society.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ray. I'm going to get us started with a a sort of a big question, which I think um, will open up the space for lots of conversation. Um, From your perspective, what are the biggest misconceptions that people generally have about the urban environment of Pompeii?
2: I think the big one is, and it's still kicking around, that this is a lovely little resort town um, down by the sea and everybody doesn't really do anything. And it's terribly lovely, whereas in actual fact, it's quite horrid. Um, (laughs) The the other thing is that it's so badly built that, I mean, if you look at any Pompeii wall, if a builder built you a wall like that, you'd actually want your money back because it, it is really shoddy. And I mean, you sort of look at it and go, well, it's not really built to last. And then we excavated it and it's been out in the rain for 200 years. And we're thinking it's going to stay up. And that seems a little odd, really. So the idea that there's great architecture there, I think that's one misconception. And if you wanted to see lots of Um, lovely marble all over the walls and things like that. Well, Pompeii is not the place to go to. There's hardly a marble column in the whole place.
1: So we're not talking about a place that has a lot of uh, monumental architecture by the sounds of it. We're talking about something that's a little bit more gritty, a little bit more down to earth.
2: They've got lots of monuments, but I mean, all those lovely columns, they are all got plaster on them. It's rather like sort of a bit of a a stage set. So it looks like it's actually, they're very good at making imitation marble, and so they have public monuments and lots of public buildings. But at the same time, they're, they're doing it quite cheaply. I mean, it's, it's not like the stuff in Rome where you actually see, yep, that's solid marble. That's a great big lump of stone. Uh, that's not really happening. <laughs> that's, that stuff's just not what they're using. So so that, that's, that's one thing. I think the other great misconception is that One of the things which we say, we look at the forum and say, isn't that a typical Roman forum? In actual fact, it was built before the Roman colony was set up. So it's an Italian forum. But we always say that as as typically Roman in terms of proportions. But in actual fact, that that concept was sort of kicking around in Italy in Italian towns as well as in Rome itself.
0: Yeah that's right there are so many different groups that have influenced the development of Pompeii before the Romans really get their hands on it aren't there
2: Oh oh yeah no I mean we always call the sort of we can see the sabines there we can see various Oscan people we can identify a little etruscan influence a little greek influence and so but that, that should really be typical of a sort of port town on the bay of naples which is connected to everywhere
1: so when we're thinking about things like you're talking about an Italian-style forum, what sort of things can we say about the public spaces of Pompeii? They sound a little bit like they they stand outside of our sort of understanding of something like Rome.
2: I, I think we have to... I think there's a scale issue here because Pompeii, you can walk across it in 15 minutes. So you probably walk... Uh, the equivalent, if you're walking through... And we no longer walk through airports, of course... But if you were walking in an airport, you probably did more walking than you would if you just wanted to cross Pompeii. So it's it's only 66 hectares, so it's a tiny place. Um, has a population of we we would guess 12,000 people. Some people put it up to 20,000, but but when we're we're sort of looking at the town, we're actually looking at something which is is very much so quite early. So the street. The street quite early. So the, the paving of the streets was put in, in the first century BC. And the streets sort of have that very, very narrow feel. You can't pass in two directions in lots of the streets. So that, that makes sort of the traffic pattern a bit more exciting. And so, so it's terribly old. So it doesn't look like some of the things of street we see in Rome, for instance, um, next to the markets of Trajan, which is much wider all the streets of Ostia, which are very wide, so in a way, it's kind of early Roman urbanism. Whereas Ostia and Rome is late Roman urbanism. So it's it's sort of kicking off because it's preserved in 1879. You get that that feel of this is something which is is not quite the same thing which is Rome in terms of scale. It's not like Ostia, which is has much wider streets. So or and it's not like some of the North African towns either, which have very wide streets. So. It's this thing which is sort of like it's a very, very old town.
1: This sounds like a really interesting problem perhaps for Pompeii to have because one of the things that people tend to say about Pompeii is that it's a trading port and to have these really uh, sort of confined street patterns seems to maybe present some issues for the people while they're trying to conduct trade. How do you get things in and out easily? How do you move around?
2: Yeah, I think, I think the, the whole trade, the trading port aspect is, is certainly there, but it's not a big port. I, I, we're not dealing with something which is big. I mean, if we looked at um, Puteoli across the Bay of Naples, there we'd have a big port. Or if we look at Portus uh, next to Ostia, that's a really big port. So Ostia, uh, Pompeii is just this little port. It brings stuff in. We have sort of amphorae coming, from, wine coming from places like Rhodes and the Greek world. We have garum coming from Spain. And, and so you have lots of things coming into it, but at the same time, it's not a big place. And, and it, we, we sort of see it as sort of, this is archetypal Roman urbanism, but it's tiny.
1: So everything's a little bit on a miniature scale. I think, I mean, that makes Pompeii kind of nicer to me in a way. It's kind of like a cute place now. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think Herculaneum is probably cuter, but I mean, but we, don't, we don't want to go there. We're trying to stay on Pompeii. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's, there's lots of sort of sweet details. I mean, at the same time, the place has 160 bars, for example. So it has a lot of shops and streets lined with shops are a real, real Roman innovation. And it's something which the Greek world doesn't really go in for. So, so that's something which it makes, it, makes it archetypally Roman or Italian. So that, that gives it a real flavour, that you're walking down the streets, they're lined with shops, and you feel, feel there that you're in sort of kind of typical European urbanism, really.
1: So I think that's a really fascinating aspect of, of what Pompeii offers us, in a way, because we can see this sort of slice of what feels like a really familiar kind of lifestyle, for us coming from a sort of a European background and in sort of um, settler contexts um, and thinking about Pompeii um, in terms of its public spaces are there any you've mentioned the forum but are there any other sort of like really notable public spaces in Pompeii that are worth drawing people's attention to?
2: I, I think you can I mean it depends whether we see baths as public spaces I mean, this this is always the difficult thing. If we just go for sort of piazzas and streets, then we're talking about 17% of the the urban space. So it's the equivalent of, I think, the exact figure. I think it's exactly the same as the amount of green space or garden space in the city. So there's a quite nice parallel there. Uh, we also think of the big palaestra next to the amphitheater, which has a swimming pool in it, um, it has trees around it, and we know that there was a lot of teaching of children there. There's lots of graffiti of alphabets there, and that sort of real sort of practicing writing letters is is all on the columns around there. So there is that sense, and there's one memorable graffito which basically says that as you don't want to pay me as a teacher, I'm off. Basically, I'm going. And it's just like this graffito: <laughs> "You want to pay me? I'm going. Amen. It's a lovely teacher's <laughs> one. So it'd be great for you guys." <laughs>
1: Teachers deserve to be paid. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I suppose this leads into an idea of like um, when we're thinking about what makes something public and what makes something private, this um, seems to lead into a, a bigger debate about how we understand public and private spaces generally in the ancient world and how the Romans in particular conceptualise space and that might be quite different from the way that we think about it today.
2: Yeah, the Romans divide things into public things like the water fountains in the streets or and also the streets are a public thing but at the same time the pavement is actually repaired by the, hu- the householder who has the property adjoining the street. so there's this kind of mixing of responsibilities. So the pavement is actually almost like part of the house. But if you go in the house, quite a lot of the area we would actually see is going, well, people want people to look into their houses from the doorways. And that there is this idea that you go into the house to see the great man. And that's kind of a public event as well. So in the Roman world, there's a concept of secret space as well. Like what happens in the cubiculum, the bedroom is where you have all the plots happening, or at night in houses, you have things done in secret. So secret is even, secret is bad private, whereas doing things in public is ideal. I mean, teaching children would be done in public, because you wouldn't actually trust a teacher to be in a room on their own with loads of children, because you want them to be observed. So that idea of the sort of distrust of things happening out of sight in the Roman world. So and in terms of property, of course, there is you actually own property from the from the ground upwards. So the idea of you owning an apartment in an apartment block is almost impossible because you have to own the ground that the apartment stands on. So that, that takes us into a whole world because we tend to assume when we walk around Pompeii that all the houses are owner-occupied. We just have this sort of click. I mean, maybe it's a British thing, maybe an Australian thing. But in actual fact, quite a few of those houses could be rented out to people. So a big rental market is in the city as well. So so that idea of sort of you could be living in a house, but you wouldn't own it. So it's private to you because you rent it, but you don't own that. So that idea of public private ownership is very strong there.
1: I'm kind of fascinated by the implications of that as well, particularly for renters. If you've got a high proportion of renters, to what degree do they get to have privacy? Um, at, at what point is that threshold um, just permissible for the owner of that piece of land to just cross and enter into that building?
2: Yeah, I think that there is also the whole thing where you could rent a you could rent a property and then subdivide it, which we hear about a lot, the rental of rooms in properties, which there is little privacy. Because you just have the room, you all go through the same doorways, you go up the stairs through somebody's house to, to get to where your own little private space is. So there's a lot of, a lot of that sort of occupation going on in the Roman world, certainly.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, Thinking about like being back out on the street for a moment, like what do we get a sense from the physical remains of Pompeii about how people are moving around? So we know we've got those narrow streets and we've got those shop fronts. Are there any other aspects that are influencing the way that people are using and moving through that urban space?
2: Well, I, I mean, they look terribly modern, the streets of Pompeii, because they've got pavements or sidewalks. And you have the crossing stones, which give you an idea of where people have put things because they paved the streets and they didn't really put in a sort of stormwater devices under the streets. So the streets are actually basically gutters as well, they're like canal. And what they, I mean, what the streets become during very wet weather is they become like water channels, which is why we have the, the famous stepping stones to keep your feet out of the wet. So the placement of the stepping stones gives us a, quite a good idea of of movement itself. We also have to think about stopping as well as as just moving through the streets because we tend to think of streets and traffic, but the street is a place for a lot of interaction. So we find little shrines to the in local deities. We, in Rome, we call them the Lares Compitales, and we very definitely, the Lares protect the neighborhood. And we find those close to crossroads sometimes tucked in a side street we also hang water fountains at the crossroads so the crossroads sort of accumulates not just traffic turning but also people doing things so if you want to get water you go to the crossroads if you want to worship you go to the crossroads if you start looking for where the alphabets are quite a lot of those are set up next to crossroads where people children are practicing uh, writing their letters so that idea of stopping is, is quite important because slowing, like the crossroads slows you down. The other thing which we do have for understanding direction, a lot of the side streets are blocked off. So, and there is also a giant change of level halfway up via Dalapandanza, um, close to the stabian balls, where you it's literally a meter and a half a level change, which means no traffic across that way. We also find an this is sort of the famous wheel ruts of Pompeii, which are, I mean, Eric Poehler at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst has spent at least 20 years studying them and measuring them in every way. But that gives us sort of an idea of direction. And he's also found where the axle of the cart rubbed against the cornerstones to actually see which is the directional movement as well. So he started mapping out and this was originally presented as a one way system for pompeii but it's a certain sense of knowing which way which streets are easier to navigate but a lot of householders were actually blocking side streets to stop cart traffic going past them but a lot of traffic would be on donkeys on mules without pulling any vehicles itself so so there's a lot of animal movement or on foot movement as well
1: This is fantastic. I think the level of detail to which the archaeological record can offer us these sorts of insights is just incredibly fascinating. And this work on wheel ruts just sounds amazing to me in terms of getting into the intricacies of how things are moving around in that space.
2: There's a whole thing in terms of you can plot repair. And one of the most extraordinary things he's found was that he found splashes of of iron, molten iron, in the wheel ruts as well as sort of slag in the wheel ruts and it would seem at some point the Romans were trying to repair the wheel ruts by pouring molten iron in them now (laughs) that's actually a really strange concept because I wonder
1: how long that would have lasted
2: iron you need an awful lot of of heating material but they saw that as easier than cutting the stone and replacing the stone so (laughs) it is one of those most extraordinary things but there are hundreds of these little splashes of iron on next to the a lot of wheel ruts so it's fairly clear that they were doing this as a sort of technological experiment which obviously didn't work
1: <laughs> oh, that's a real shame and it also i could just imagine that if it it maybe it did work to a certain extent and then somebody along came in the night and maybe chipped one out and took it away uh, for their own benefit but I imagine if people saw them, they'd get into trouble. Yeah. Um, thinking about the, the sort of the layers that we have at Pompeii when we're thinking about um, the streets and the public spaces, how have things changed over time? Is there much distinction that we can tell from the different levels of excavation?
2: I think I think the thing which we can tell more of, because nobody's really dug a great big hole through a street yet, there's a piece of work which has been done on the Forum because the Forum has changed in terms of quite a lot of it. A lot of the streets have blocked off. And what was found in that piece of work was the entire orientation of the city was changed by the blocking of the streets into the Forum. Previously, I mean, we see the Forum today as something which is almost put to one side of the main streets. Whereas previously, a lot of streets ran through it from a, a west to east or east to west direction, straight through the Forum. And they got blocked off by doing that. they completely changed the sort of the pattern of traffic flow in the city so, and the forum became this sort of enclosed space whereas previously it'd been very open to traffic and that change is probably one of the most staggering changes to the city and it was it was done by just intricate work on thinking through well what's the implication of blocking a street and we we find this occasionally in the modern world where there was a street in Paris which was blocked off by one one small local council and it completely disrupted people's commute into into Paris. So just moving just one sort of bit of the traffic system slightly can cause these big changes. but in Pompeii it's it's very clear when they they started shutting off the east-west axes into the forum that they completely changed the nature of traffic flow. They, they reduce the traffic flow because a grid of streets in a way is the most open for multiple routes of any any structure of any form of street planning. Therefore, by closing it, you're actually concentrating traffic and human interaction on a number of streets. So you're, you're changing a sort of even pattern in something which is really concentrated. And it's as though urbanism actually needs that concentration because if you actually disperse... People evenly across a a grid plan, urbanism doesn't really work. It starts fragmenting, it starts, people start feeling isolated, where that close togetherness and that sort of intensity is is quite an important thing.
1: So, in a way, it sounds like perhaps by closing that road down, they've created the opportunity for different types of interactions and maybe a different sense of relationship, particularly to the forum and how they navigate it.
2: Certainly to the forum. The forum becomes a much more Um, enclosed place a much more formal space it doesn't have carts running through it it doesn't have people running through it 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 becomes almost like formalized and and some of the architecture which I mean you think of all the columns and some of the temples are in sort of multiple temples in the forum uh, by by the Julia Claudian period then then we're sort of seeing we're seeing something which is sort of a formal space, but a space which is enclosed, a space which is quite controlled. Whereas previously, you you could see well if you can drive straight through it, that that's actually almost like a uh, that's that's a very different form of urbanism. It's rather like if you take people to Naples, you sort of suddenly see this intensity of traffic. It's almost like that difference compared with driving around Sydney, for example, which would be which is the most leisurely experience
0: it can possibly be. Oh, don't tell Sydney side is that they'll never believe you. I must admit, I'm, I feel like I'm getting a bit of a Sydney vibes from listening to you talk about Pompeii, <laughs> one-way streets and narrow streets that so you can only go down in one direction. It's sounding all too familiar. <laughs>
1: So, if we're thinking about um, as a as a wrap up to thinking about streets and spaces, what would you say are some of the biggest advantages and challenges of studying um, this kind of idea within the context of Pompeii? Thinking about urban space and thinking about the streets in particular,
2: I I think the big challenge is you can't go and talk to people about what they did. I mean, that's that's the, that's the biggest challenge. You actually want to I, if you do urban studies in the modern world. You go, you do surveys, you follow people around, whereas we actually have no people. So having no people, we have to do everything from material culture. So we plot everything. We plot all the graffiti, where where people wrote more graffiti and less graffiti. And then we, we've looked at the wheel ruts. We've, we've mapped all the benches, the water fountains, the street shrines. We've mapped everything. But there's a point where you almost go, well, how does it all work? How many people live in that house? And, and that that causes you to be completely stuck. You can see that's a bigger house, but how many people were in it? Well, we don't know. And that, that's where we, we get into these, this worry. And we can see some streets have more shops in them and openings, doorway openings. And that gives us an idea of something which is busier. But at the same time, what does that do? And like, I mean, what's the timing of streets as well? We can do some things from literary sources that, yes, the shops open at the third hour and the baths are really populated at the eighth hour and things like that. But we we don't have that sense of sort of going, well, what is a normal day in Pompeii? And we don't have that sense of going, how does it work in terms of imagination of sort of putting people back into the, the city itself?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight that because so often when you open up books about Pompeii, you will be presented with an account of a day in Pompeii, and it will go through, this is what you would do in the morning, and this is what you would do around lunchtime, and this is what you do in the afternoon. And as you say, whilst you might be able to generalise to a certain extent, it's good to highlight just how much confusion I think there is and how many possibilities there are for what life was actually like on a day-to-day basis.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that it's also going, well, how often were the elite actually in Pompeii? I mean I mean we, we know that the Senate in Rome met once a month. So we I mean we have imagination it's sort of every when I was a student reading about the Roman Republic, I thought, well, Cicero must be going to the Senate every day, he seems really busy about it. But in actual <laughs> fact they get most of the stuff done in in once a month sitting. So so what does that mean in terms of what do you do the rest of the time those things like law courts and all of those things are going on but what like this this is actually very low government level
1: Sounds maybe more relaxing to be part of the elite in the ancient world
2: Yes
0: So thinking now about how confusing it is to try and piece together day to day life we're going to turn to one of the groups that's perhaps the most difficult i think to chart in the ancient Roman world and that includes in a city like Pompeii which has been preserved you know in such a different way to other towns but that is children so children are very tricky to track down in the archaeological record and you've highlighted in your own work that when we study a place like Pompeii we tend to see Pompeii from the perspective of adults because children leave less of a track that we can actually, you know, pin down and trace in the archaeological record, in the literary record. And even when we're talking about things like human remains, bones and their bodies are much more delicate and prone to either be dispersed or decay over time. So it's so hard to know what it would be like to be a child in Pompeii. Uh, but you've really made this an area of study.
2: Yeah, I, I think I, I was, well, having done, written a book about Pompeii, which didn't include children, you just like go, well, that's children constitute half the population. Okay, so the ancient world demographically, that would be the model we'd go. So 50% of the population is under 18, 7% of the population is over 60, roughly the same number of adults as today, sort of between 18 and 60. And if you think that through, you've got to explain how urbanism works for children. Also, how do they learn urbanism? And what's the process whereby you know what to do when you walk down the street? That that whole process, or how do you learn your lesson? And the thing which was, I think there are about 100 graffiti of alphabets across Pompeii. And th- this started me thinking about that. And also there's some fantastic work by someone called Catherine Huntley, where she looked at all the figurative graffiti. A lot of them are in primary schools. We do this. We we get children to draw a stick-drawing of themselves in probably year three or four. They're, they also exist in Pompeii, and they're exactly the same as the ones which you would get from a primary school child today or <laughs> anywhere else, because the 1960s, anthropologists went round the world to find people who hadn't had contact with the West and got them to draw images of what they thought themselves looked like. You have big hands, typically um, big heads, for example, Long arms is another, another trait, and these, are, these have been categorized according to age, and Catherine Huntley did this fantastic piece of work on just sort of looking at, like, how do these show stages of development, how tall are they off the floor, so you can get a rough idea of, you tend to naturally, if you're going to draw on a wall, you tend to go for eye level, you can try this out for yourselves later and tell me I'm wrong. Uh, <laughs> because when you when you say this to somebody, you go, no, no, I'd do it right down by my waist. And go, well, no, you wouldn't, because you've got to be able to see, to, to write the thing. And especially if you're learning to write, because most of the graffiti from Pompeii are just somebody's name. So I think the exciting thing about graffiti is not what they say, but the fact that somebody stood there in the ancient world and did that writing, that action of writing is probably one of the the sort of urban phenomenons which we take for granted because we want to read what the writing says. But it's actually the writing itself that somebody stood there 2,000 years ago or more and just wrote their name or wrote an insult to somebody or wrote an alphabet because they were trying to learn their letters. And that, that to me, gives the sort of real insight. But you can see how tall things are. So some of the very low-down graffiti uh, we tend to associate with children. So from there, we sort of, I started to sort of thinking through, well, could children serve a drink at a bar in Pompeii? Could they go up to a bar and ask for a drink? Because that's actually quite difficult in Australia, in the UK, because bars typically are built to be tall, tall so that people don't jump over them and assault the barman, <laughs> um, Or children can't be served. I mean, it depends how you see it. And what we found is that they were, they're about 60 centimetres in height. They're really low. So compared with your kitchen counter, they would be, for us, because we're very tall, I mean, a female in Pompeii is one metre 54 on average, and male is one metre 66. So they they are fairly small people. I mean, Interestingly, in the 1960s, the average height of Neapolitans was lower than that, which is one of the things that they've all grown since then. But the the thing which you can do, you can actually start looking at the height of things. Can can you go to a water fountain if you're a child and get some water and take it home? Well, the answer is yes, because they're not very tall. The other thing you can use, because we know how tall the adults are, you can use things like um, human growth charts as a proxy to see how tall somebody was at any age. And um, human growth charts are given to every parent who has child born in certainly in the UK, uh, based on a study of, I think, of children in Boston in the 1970s. So they're they're a little bit off.
0: (laughs) Um, Sounds helpful.
2: But you, you suddenly look at those and look at the sort of Pompeian heights. Well, they're actually the lowest percentile of our modern world. They're the shortest people in the modern world, would be the average Pompeian. But human growth is quite linear. It doesn't, I mean, it can be interrupted through disease, which we know from the study of teeth in Pompeii, that there are lots of episodes where people are so ill with a very, very high temperature for two weeks that they don't produce calcium. So they get these striations on bones and on their teeth, and the teeth can be measured and dated to roughly at what age they had that period of disease where they, they just stop producing calcium. They, they basically shut down and stop growing because they're so ill. So that gives us quite a lot of data. And you suddenly realize, "Go well, we've actually got quite a lot here. And if you start looking at the city as though, well, if you were this high as a child, could you do this? You can start sort of understanding that. I, I think the, the parallel for this is also um, what happens in terms of aging in later life. This is something which we're... There's quite a bit of debate around sort of disability studies in the ancient world, starting up over the last decade. And one of the things is, well, most people who are old are going to have eyesight problems, just because that's what happens. So how do they use the city in those conditions? Uh, because it's fairly difficult to get around currently, and. The archaeological authorities in Pompeii have done all sorts of things to try and make the city more the site more accessible to disabled people, blind people, etc. So, so how that group of people, I mean, aging is pretty vicious on the eyesight. I mean, I think it's something which we are very conscious of. I have several colleagues terrified that they go blind. And so that that really sort of promotes this idea of sort of going, well, how do you deal with this city, because we've got the artefacts. So we can start talking about, well, how does a blind person go through Pompeii or how does a child go through Pompeii? Because we've got the urban environment to understand it. We just need to actually sort of think through what humans do in those environments.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that really intrigued me as I was having a look through some of the work that you've published on this is that Pompeii seems to have been actually a lot more accessible to children of a, of a younger age than I actually would have thought. You know, it's it seems like wh- whether you're talking about religious rights or, as you were just highlighting before, you know, going into a bar accessing a water fountain, they actually would have been younger than I would have assumed, potentially, in terms of being able to see what was going on or appreciate what was going on and, therefore, learning about their own culture by experiencing that urban environment.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's... I think if you... I mean, logically, if half the population is are children, well, they have to be able to access, it, access the urban environment or it doesn't work. And that, that's, that's a kind of sort of fundamental. And the, the thing which I, I got quite interested in, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole set of studies of middle childhood from about eight to 13 of what do children do at that period? Well, they tend to um, go off and get lost largely. Rather <laughs> than staying very close to adults they tend to go and explore and that that exploration i think is quite an interesting concept of how far do you go away from the home I mean, you can go how do you go to somebody else's house that's a, somebody else's house in somewhere else that that idea of going how do you navigate the streets because most tourists tend to tend to get lost when they get to pompeii because they can't get out because they don't know the way um, they they have sort of panics about that, but how do you learn the <laughs> way to certain places, or how do you learn to, that going down that street takes you to such and such? So that 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 kind of comes into it, I think.
1: Mm, and children going to school as well, like, are they picking up friends along the way? Are they being dropped off, as it were?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's one of those things which we we're we're fairly uncertain of. Or does the teacher just go round the school? to the houses and round them all up and take them to where, where he wants them because he can have them anywhere. I mean, that there, there are there are schools which are said to be at the end of alleyways or in public space always rather than in something which is shut in. So that, that's actually a sort of intriguing thing. And so we do have some election notices which says the teacher and his pupils want you to vote for so-and-so.
0: So <laughs>
2: there, there is a certain solidarity there
0: and there are of course some very interesting pieces of information that have been left behind about children even maybe being involved in politics. So notoriously the temple of ISIS when it was damaged by the earthquake that happened in around 62 or 63 CE was rebuilt by a six-year-old.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> he's a town councillor so and we do know of, i uh, there's an eight-year-old and there's another one as well from the same family who were both on the town council when they were children. And you get into this, this thing of going, well, how do they go to the meetings? <laughs> like, like, do they walk independently if they're six years old? Do they, do they get sort of taken to some point in Pompeii and then, yeah, you've got to walk the other way and then you've got to sit through all this boring crap the adults are going on about. So so that, that they're not unique, that six-year-old. So that there's several of them that we know of. And you, you're just like going, well, presumably there's some dressing up and performance of this. And how, do, how does that six-year-old walk down the street or go to the Temple of Isis and go, oh, it's him? Because the inscription itself is also intriguing because... I think it's set up, the inscription's set up when he's an adult, because reading it logically, it doesn't make any sense that it, the inscription's been set up when he's six years old. Right. It, it sort of looks as though, and thinking that because there's, so there's 17 years between the earthquake and the eruption, so in that period, that inscription's got to be set up at some point. So let's say he's six in 62 A.D., then if he's seventeen years older at the eruption, he's then twenty-three. And that's just the point where you start standing to be an aedile. So it might be might be sort of you can actually see, well, so yep, he's six years old then, and then he's much older when the eruption happens, but he's not really an adult even. So through that entire period, he's grown up as a child as a town councillor.
0: I find that so fascinating because Dr. Jean and I have definitely tried on some traditional Roman clothing and we couldn't even stand in it elegantly, let alone move <laughs> through a Roman or, or a Pompeian cityscape without looking like total fools. And I just, I'm just so intrigued by that idea as well, because in the Roman world, what you wear is also supposed to, you know, signify your status to a certain extent, but the idea of people being able to see this little six-year-old potentially going off to his town council meeting, maybe all dressed up. And I kind of have this image of a six-year-old being like, Dad, you're so embarrassing. Just leave me alone. Let me go to the council by myself.
2: Yeah, no, and, it, and it's also you're meant to walk slowly. Uh, this, this is the sort of the, the whole walk, walking is also performative in the sense that you don't want to be rushing around because that's what a slave does. And, and children are allowed to rush around. But obviously the six-year-old, being dressed in a toga to go to the to go to the town council meeting has to walk like a town councillor or learn to walk like a town councillor <laughs> so so that's like cuz obviously mistakes have got to be made in this if you're a child so you've got to get it wrong but a lot of being a roman adult is about not getting it wrong in two different ways which are contradictory so you could walk too fast but then you could just be slow so that you could too slow so <laughs>
1: I wonder about how a child ends up as a town councillor, though. They rebuild the Temple of Isis, Dr. G. <laughs> this, this does seem relatively outside of the bounds of what adults might reasonably accept from their governance structures.
2: Yeah, I, the, the thing is, there's, there's, once you start looking for the... I, it's like anything you start looking for in the ancient world, you either don't find it at all, or you find enough of it to suggest it's not completely unknown. So the the six-year-old on the Temple of Isis is not so weirdly out there that it's not unknown in other places. <laughs> so so it, I, mean, I, I think every so often you have the aberration. The other children who were town councillors, they are from one of Pompeii's most wealthy families. So, but this one's different because he's meant to be a son of a freed slave. Although the the argumentation around that can go both ways but let's say he is for the moment then he's the the freed slave can't be in the town council so the child is meant to be some sort of proxy for the freed slave because the exclusion of freed slaves from politics is one of those things that the romans do do but that their children are perfectly legitimate for being involved in politics
0: and I, I love the fact that you also have highlighted that when we're thinking about the experiences of these children, that we would have to think about obviously more than just their what they can see. It's also about that combination of their senses that they would be using: their touch, their hearing, their sense of smell. All of that kind of stuff would go into their lived experience, but it's so hard to trace in the evidence.
2: I, I think it's there's there's a lovely thing in the uh, Petronius's satiricon where one of the freed slaves said that he learnt to, he can read um, capital letters but not cursive scripts because, and he says that he learns them from inscriptions, right? So, and if you look at the height of the inscription letters, they are actually really low down. I'm intriguingly, my youngest son, when he was very small, because street signs in the UK aren't way up where they are in Sydney, they're, they're down low, they're actually at child height. Um, at the end of the road so you can't see, you basically can't see them when you turn into the turn the corner but for him he used to stop every single one and trace the letters and was learning to read without actually any aid from adults by just we had to stop at every single corner because we had <laughs> the letters on every single one every single time but that process i mean that that's just like his brother wasn't didn't even see this stuff but some humans will actually learn through that process. So that process of touch is quite important, sort of very tactile, very, very small child. But that just shows you how that can work through. So so when we look, we get quite a lot of evidence. And it's also then you start worrying, well, we always assume that all this archaeology is about adults. And we actually have to include of because we've, we've looked in the past for toy, things which are definitely toys that must be about children. But then we discovered that adults make ritual deposits of miniature objects. There's a lot of work on miniature objects in the ancient world now. And they can be used ritually to represent much bigger objects by adults. So they're not toys. And once you get out of that hurdle, you, you're then getting into the world of going, okay so all of this stuff can actually be used by everybody so what we assume is adults material culture is actually children's material culture as well and we can't differentiate the two because we don't know who's using it and that 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 becomes quite quite intriguing things. and and the way children use material culture is quite different as well so in terms of just dropping things for example rather than putting them away is, is classic you know?
0: absolutely and I, I think one of the things that if we sort of think about the the spatial elements of this relationship between adults and children as well one of the things about that relationship in Pompeii is that they don't really seem to have specific spaces that are just for children as we might have in in our modern towns, like we we don't really see specific nurseries or playrooms and that sort of thing for children in Pompeii, do we? I,
2: I think we have the the large palaestra, which I you start worrying about this almost immediately because uh, it's got a great big swimming pool in the middle. I don't think the Romans had a really concept of a swimming pool fence. I think this is sort of possible, <laughs> but that seems to be a, a place where. Children certainly spent quite a lot of recreation time, and there are a number of palaestras which are associated with youth groups, for example the Juvenes, and that form of sort of physical recreation combined with intellectual recreation, of the combining of philosophy at the same time as sport, and I think it's Agricola, Tacitus says that his mother taught him not to drink too heavily out of the cup of philosophy, which is bad for young people. But, of course, the Stoicism comes from old people always. It's always the old writers who write are the Stoics, the survival of uh, the old age. But that, that concept of places where groups meet together, I, I think there's, there's quite a lot of that going on. I, I think also that the street is one great big social thing. I mean you just think of Via Dalm Damso, it's just lined by shops after shops with bars, and then the houses are in entrances and houses are interspersed between. It that's actually a sort of very that's the place where children and adults go.
0: Yeah, I think that's one thing that always surprises my students because we tend to get very caught up, as you say, on the buildings and the houses and, and what was going on inside, but you have to remind them that there really would have been a very bustling street life, especially for people that didn't live in fancy, spacious houses because not everybody in Pompeii did have a nice atrium-type house.
2: No, no, exactly. I mean, a lot of people were living in their shop and that's, that's all they had. And that's, and that's very, very limiting. I, mean, I think the reason for lots of bars is because people wanted hot food and also cooler drinks as well.
0: Absolutely. And I just want to highlight one particular piece of evidence which always gets brought up when it comes to places like Pompeii because we actually have access to human remains. And recently I believe there have actually even been a few finds of children's bodies. Even I think a, a pregnant woman who was carrying a, I think it was a 36-week-old fetus. What do what do the human remains tell us about children's lives in terms of, you know, were they working heavy labor? Was that a common experience for children, as far as we can tell, or are there not enough to really make any generalizations? Right,
2: there are lots and lots of fetuses found in Pompeii because the pregnant women couldn't run away um, in AD seventy nine. It's one of those rather real disproportion of fetuses um, were found in the skeletal remains. the The children themselves, we don't. I mean, the problem with skeletal evidence is to get any wear into bones which are growing, because bones are growing and you, you don't get the wear coming into them in childhood. They they tend to be... But, I mean, the health and teeth thing is is very strong, that being ill as a child, like seriously ill, was a very common experience. And we, we think about half of all the people who were born would die before they're adult in the Roman world. So... So illness, sickness, and death would actually characterize childhood. And the ones which survive are are those who are going to be adults. And if you think that I think explaining it to one of your classes would be, well, half of you would be dead by now to a year group of year twelve. I think it's a very graphic way of say of explaining the death rate in, in childhood and in the ancient
0: world. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Well that's certainly given us a lot to think about and I think uh, to sort of just start to draw our conversation to a close I think one of the things that you've highlighted really well in talking about both the spatial environment of Pompeii and also the lived experience for the people of Pompeii is that there are some intriguing things that can be highlighted about Roman culture from these places but at the same time it is a unique place that was destroyed at a very particular point in time. And we also have to be careful about perhaps how much we generalise from a site like this.
2: I, I think it's also there's a, there's a sort of trick. I mean, it is quite unique. It's very difficult to compare to other places. And somebody will always turn around and go, well, Pompeii is completely unique, so it can't be true uh, of anywhere else, which, I mean, it used to be an interview question I used to have for jobs. So you just like, go, oh, no, it's that question again. But there's also this feeling, there's a certain disquiet when we study Pompeii sometimes because it is a place where an awful lot of people died in AD 79. And and you sometimes get, that can be quite distressing of going, well, how should we treat the dead from the eruption of Vesuvius? Because I I think I was looking at the British Museum exhibition of casts and you're just finding that this is actually really macabre and sensationalising. And you're just like going, well, how do we get that balance of we always treat human beings today who are alive in a certain way. We probably need to treat the dead with sort of similar sorts of respect.
1: I think it's a very good point, though, because this is an increasingly broad discussion that I think is happening across um, particularly museum culture as well, is navigating remains and also the repatriation of remains as well. And so to be in a spot like Pompeii and to be seeing um, that kind of evidence and to navigate it, thinking about what is going to be the legacy of where these pieces ultimately end up, I think, I mean, there's a human being with a life there, and I I think it's important to not forget that, and I think it's impressive that, that that's at the forefront of your thinking as well.
2: Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's something which you're just like going. Well, how do we treat the ancient world with the same levels of respect that we have in for the modern world? It, it's something which I I've noticed a change in the way we treat. For for we treat Caligula, for instance, we we used to call him the Mad Emperor, but we no longer do that. We actually try and you've got to explain what that actually means to the Roman world and what does it mean to us to say that because. How does that characterise people with mental illness today? Because it, it just simply doesn't work. And I, I think that's it's quite a nice example of how we're, we're shifting in our own thinking of how we teach and how we explain things.
0: Yeah, I must admit, I think my own attitude towards the, the sites and the bodies has changed, even with time. I think when I, I talk to my students about Pompeii, obviously, a lot, and we, we have to talk about human remains as one of the syllabus dot points, and I find that they they do tend to be quite frustrated by that syllabus dot point because they're like, it happened so long ago, get over it, why are we talking yeah. about this? And I can I can understand that because I think when I was their age as well, I did kind of look at the cast as being like a statue. That's kind of how they appeared to me. Mm-hmm. But now when I look at them and I look at particularly, I mean, given what we've been talking about, particularly the cast where you've got the child with the parent kind of melded together in this odd final position. It it does actually affect you more, I think, when you're older and you have a family of your own. And I don't know, I think your sensibilities can also change over time, just within your own lifetime, just from personal experience, but also obviously those broader conversations.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely.
0: Well, thank you so much for stopping by to talk about Pompeii with us. Uh, Before we go, I'll ask you one final question, which is, do you have any insights about any of the recent finds from Reggio 5? Because I believe that one of them was actually some graffiti that's believed to be done by a child. So I thought that would be right up your alley. Yeah, there, are, there
2: is. I mean, what you have to get hold of, and I haven't yet, is Massimo Asana's book, uh, which is, I mean, it is going to be published in English. I I was I was thinking about two months ago, I must order an Italian copy and then forgot to order it. But there, there is so much, and the... I know, I think what you see there is actually sort of the freshness of the colours. I mean, I I was I mean, I think the uh, the TV programmes about the uh, the bar was quite remarkable, and then they've got this weird chariot burial outside Pompeii as well, which they found, which is, is even stranger. So, lots of things which are pretty challenging.
0: Absolutely. Well, we'll have to put that on our to-buy list. Dr. G might even order it in the Italian, given that she is always trying to improve her her understanding. Yeah, boy, always trying to improve my Italian. Yes, right,
2: yeah. So it's good to try it. Try, try is important. If you think. <laughs> Vienna, try. <laughs> yeah,
0: always. Uh, piano, piano con la pratica. Well, we're so grateful for you for talking to us about Pompeii today, and of course to the wonderful department at Macquarie University, which to which we owe a lot of our education and our enthusiasm for ancient history, and what you also do for our own students in the in the years since we've been at university ourselves. And if you're interested, of course, you can have very easy access to some of Ray Lawrence's work by just going and checking out his TED Ed videos about what life would be like for children in the ancient Roman world
2: well thank you
0: is there anything you would like to plug before we sign off I,
2: I don't think I've got anything to plug at the moment <laughs> disappointing <laughs> disappointing you, you plug, the, you plug the you plug the animation so no I think there is going to be a book on the cultural history of shopping coming next year but that's it's just been finished so it's going to take about a year for it to come out and but that, that will be good all about shopping.
0: I know, it sounds like just what the modern world was crying out for as well. Yeah, absolutely. And when we, are, we are very grateful that you also did join us whilst we were in lockdown because, of course, the irony of us speaking to someone who we actually have physical access to and having to do it online <laughs> has not escaped any of us, I'm sure. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's just I mean, it's kind of typical of lockdown. It has to happen, really. It's like, well, you're just like, why do we arrange so many things for that week? <laughs> just...
0: It is, it is very frustrating, but we're glad that we're still able to chat to you.
2: <laughs> okay.